You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalen. That over from England, and then, um, yeah, my <laughs> other favorite is Batman, and I bought well, get Batman, so. Oh, uh, wow, so. You, I guess you could tell your wife it could always be worse. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually really cool, though. Well, you've got some pretty cool helmets there as well, it looks like, in the back. Redskins, I can see. Oh. Is that Dallas Cowboys? Yeah, so um, we actually skydived into a Redskins practice. Yeah. And, uh, here, hold on a minute. and so, there you go. Hopefully well, that helps. We actually skydived into the Redskins practice, and so Joe Gibbs signed the helmet and gave it to one of us. Uh, it's a football signed by a lot of San Diego Chargers back when they were when like Ladelian Thomason was running back, yeah, and, um, like he, he broke the record. Then we jumped into the Oklahoma University versus Oregon Ducks football game, and uh, Toby Keith was there, so I had him sign the next football over. <laughs> the football, the helmet on the side. That's when we jumped into the Pro Bowl, and so that's a John Madden type. Get thing. out! That yeah. is awesome. All my different racing uh, things that I've, like, all the different schools I've gone to, signed uh, diecast to- uh, thing by Steve Celine when he created the Celine. Uh, S7, Andy Pilgrim, who when he used to race with uh, Cadillac Racing and the old CTSVRs, um, when I flew with the Blue Angels, all that neat stuff, and then books on politics and overseas stuff and history and whatnot. So oh. and some of my other helmets that I have. No, that's that's pretty wild, man. So I don't have uh, quite that kind of. I have an I love me wall, but I can't turn the camera that uh, flips over there. But I'm sure we all have one of those. It, you have to, man. Yeah. That's uh, absolutely my. That's the my my true I love me wall. My military stuff's in the office, but oh yeah, that's where I'm at. This is basically my office. So if you turn left, it's kind of like an I love me wall. And for years, I didn't want to create one. It's one of those things you kind of struggle with that. And then my wife's like, "All right, you got all this shit sitting here inside this room. <laughs> what are you gonna do with it?" And I'm like, all right, all right, I'll I'll do something. And I thought, well, why don't I just hang up some of this stuff? I started yeah. looking through it, and I had boxes. I, I'm talking, so I started throwing stuff away, and you know, going through it. I probably shouldn't have, but I figured I had some stuff that I really thought was important. Then I'll go ahead and keep it, and that's what I kept, and uh, nice. was the stuff that I thought was important anyway. Heck yeah! But yeah. I probably should have kept the other stuff in a. I still have my old uh, battle dress uniform and, you know, old fatigues, everything else. My combat boots, I can't even put the damn things on. Because you know how your feet, after a while, they... Uh, they yeah. Well, you know, you're wearing them when you sweat all the time and, sure. and the whole bit. So, of course, they shrink when you don't yeah, wear them. Well, yeah. So, I don't know. If- I wish I had all that stuff left over. My uh, storage unit got broken into last August that I had. And it was the stuff I had in transition. Oh. My military dress uniforms, my dress whites, my dress blues, all my camis, a ton of military gear. No. All my scuba gear, dry suits. I mean, all my, I mean, I have signed jerseys from Drew Brees, Philip Rivers, um, yeah, Rivers, um, uh, Troy Palomalu, John Lynch, Donnie Edwards, all kinds of stuff that some illegal alien method decided to sell for meth. Get out. I wish. I wish. I mean, when the detectives actually found the guy. Oh, so they actually found him. They found him, but and they, they brought him up on all kinds of charges and, yeah. and whatnot. But it still doesn't replace all the stuff that you know, stuff like like that type of memories. Right. Sure. And um, I just I looked at the I'm sitting there and I was just calmly raging inside because I just want to beat the. <laughs> and uh, I just very calmly looked at the detective. I said, 
can I go talk to him? <laughs> and the cop said, you want me to go grab a coffee for a cup? Yeah, exactly. Leave you in a room. And... What you do. Can I go talk to him? <laughs> he said as much as I would like, love for that to happen. That's not going to happen. I said, I understand. Uh, <laughs> I mean, man, yeah. I cannot even imagine. I still have like old TA-50 stuff, like, you know, a web gear stuff and you know oh, yeah. canteens and you know stuff that you acquire through the time or whether it's a uh an ammo pouch or a first aid kit pouch or you know all the stuff that you'd end up wearing and i acquired second or thirds of those and through my years and spending 20 something years you end up acquiring all kinds of good stuff and yeah you go to you go down and you buy extras because when you go and maybe they have a layout inspection which god you always hope the they never do, and because you'll never have all the right stuff, obviously. Yep. But you have a lot of stuff, and so I've got a lot of stuff still sitting in boxes that I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with it. I did take a pair of the uh, the pants and started to make shorts out of them, and decided that I'll go ahead and keep them, and I mow my grass with them, and work yeah. out in the yard and stuff. And so I feel real cool getting that I'm able to actually fit in them, mind you. <laughs> so. When, a, when, a, when if you're a significant other, fit in a pair of pants, fit in the dress. It's like, and you're just like, yeah, I fit in them. You know? Exactly. <laughs> I had, I mean, all the stuff we had: wetsuits, over the beach bags, no way, gear, cold weather gear. I mean, it was he scored. I mean, you literally, if he knew what the hell he was doing, he just outfitted a small army. I mean, I had that much stuff. You had scuba gear in there besides yeah. wetsuits. Oh yeah, tanks. I mean, tanks? Like regulators, tanks, regulators, stuff, dry suits. Oh, nine, everything. Oh, and he probably sold that for like pennies on the dollar. He didn't know what the hell he had. Otherwise, he would have. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a bummer, man. I'm sorry to hear that. Jeez, that like. I I uh, used to Scooby Doo a long time ago, and Scooby Doo. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I haven't done that in so long. And part of the reason why is I'd go out with guys that that didn't know what they were really doing. And I've got some really bad stories, you know, of going out with guys. And, you know, one of the first things you're supposed to do is pick a partner that actually wants to do the same thing you want to do. You know, so I'd have a guy that one day he wants to, he wants to fish or something. And I just want to go out there and blow bubbles. And so I'm having to follow him around and he decides to jet off and just, just bad stuff, you know? Yeah. That's a, that's a good recipe for disaster when you got that going on or at that time it's save your own yeah, so. well, and that's exactly what it uh, what happened. And typically, if you do start doing wreck dives, they're about eighty five feet or deeper, and then you got filament all around you and stuff because the fishermen love to fish there because of the fish, you know, that get in that area because of the wrecks. And, and that's not the place to not have a clue. I mean, right? Because right. you can get inside out, upside down, real quick. Inside real wrecks, quick. And next thing you know, you don't know how you're getting out. Yeah. Well, and Did like you what? Eight, reels? Let's see if I remember the tables. 85 feet, you've got about what, 20, 25 minutes uh, bottom time? Something sure. like that? At 85 feet? Yeah, yeah. maybe. Because I know like at 120, I mean, it's like five minutes and you're gone. Yeah. Yeah. I want to so, say it was like 20 minutes max, possibly. but, you know, but that didn't leave you much time down there. And of course, if you run into a panic and you can't cut the filament off your tank, which actually happened, and I was able to get free, but I mean, it gets caught around, you know, where the regulator comes in, then sure. you you could literally be hosed right there, you know, yeah. if somebody's not watching you. Yeah. Uh, we used reels when we went into uh, Rex just because you, like, clipped it off on the outside, and that's you, as you swam in, it on the reel behind you, just so you know, safe in, safe out, and you didn't get turned upside down or backwards. Yeah, I, I have some... 
I don't want to bore you with details, man, but every one of my dies were that way. And I don't know if they'd be boring, to be quite honest. I'm sure they'd be going, how the hell did you make it? <laughs> well, I, I can tell you one story where there was uh, two of us. You know you're never supposed to die with three guys in the first place. You're supposed to always have a buddy. So, But we were on vacation, and we decided that we'd go blow bubbles. And we, we dove off and went down. One of the guys couldn't clear his ears. And we're down about, I don't know, me and the other guy, maybe 65 feet, something like that at that point. Waiting on him to get down. He's about 35 feet hanging on to the anchor. And um, finally he lets go and he points in a direction. So we take off following after him. Now we're we're down still. So we come up a little bit and meet him about halfway. And uh, we're going for a while. And I noticed that nobody took an azimuth. Nobody did anything. Now, you know, we've got about maybe 30 feet visibility, 40 feet visibility. It's not really great. So I grab both of their fins you know, I'm back behind trailing, and I grab both their fins, and I look at them, and I go, you know, compass. Did anybody take a compass? They both do this, and they take off swimming again. So I stop them, I grab them once again, and I'm like, you know, compass. You know, anybody take a compass reading? Where we're going, you know? And they're like, you know. So I stop, and I take my regulator out. Compass, you know? <laughs> and, you know, put it back in. And uh, they both look at me, and I'm like, you know, I'm going up. You know, you stay here. So I decide to ascend, and I go up to the top. From what depth? No, uh, from like 60 feet at this point, 65 feet. What kind of body of water? Assault water. I'm Assault out in the ocean? Gulf. Yeah. Okay. So I come up. I didn't do a safety stop. So I come up, and because uh, I'm in a panic or whatever. Thank God nothing happened. I, I come up the top, stick my head up. And the boat is about, you know, an inch, you know, inch and a half. I mean, we're a good distance away from that boat. From that point, I go back, put my mask back under, and I'm like, you follow me, you know. And you I still so, see him. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I shot a, uh, well, they had come up a little bit. They, oh, okay. I shot an azimuth, and I went down about 10 feet just so I could get underneath the current or whatever that was there in the wakes. Sure. And uh, it wasn't very far so that I could come up and recheck. Sort of like doing a compass reading on the on na land nav or something where every so often you reshoot it again, make sure you're not burying off. And I did that and we got all the way back to the boat. I, I don't know how we got back to the boat to this day. I, it still freaks me out thinking about it. Man. We, I, I got a better one for you since you're a scuba guy. We were sitting out there, and we seen all these sand dollars and uh, starfish and everything laying out in this guy's front yard uh, where we were out there, and again, the Gulf of Mexico. And the guy's like, yeah, me and my son, we just went out. We got all these earlier this morning, and we're like, man, we got air. Let's go. You know, you got a boat? And like, he's like, yeah, I got a boat. So we get in this little boat. It's probably about a little 25-foot boat or something like that, and there's five of us. Once again, the same three guys, We're and, and him and his son. And we're heading out in this boat, and I mean, it's really choppy and everything. And we get out there to the Gulf, and I can still see land. We're not that far out. And uh, he's like, this is about the spot that we had it. And he's like, why don't you go ahead and throw that uh, anchor over? My buddy looks down, and he goes, that's your anchor? He goes, it's two cinder blocks and a uh, gallon milk jug. And he goes, does this really hold the boat down? The guy goes, yeah, it works fine. Throw it over. So we throw it over, and the guy goes, okay, here's the plan. We're going to go down the anchor, come back up the anchor. You know, we should be right in the area. Take your bag with you. And I'm like, yeah, 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 okay, let's do it. Let's just jump in. Went down the anchor. We all five got down to the bottom. Soon as he let go of the rope, the rope swung out, went out about 40 feet in front of us, hit the sand. You saw the sand go up. We all look at one another and go, holy crap. 
for like the next 20 minutes, the wave would come up and it would move that cinder block and those, uh, oh, yeah. and pick up the anchor and throw it about 40 feet in front of us. So the whole time we're trying to time it so that when the wave would happen, we could be there. And I finally reached it at one point after chasing it. I don't know how long I chased it. It probably fell up, went up and back down like four or five times. So we probably traveled 120 feet, 160 feet before I finally got a hold of it. I, I went up that anchor, had my safety stop, got back up on the dead gum boat, and I'm like, dudes, I could care less about anything. I'm just glad we're still living. We need to get back to shore, you know? Yeah. That so, sounds like we were, I was in Lake Erie, and um, we went on a dude's boat, and the guy's acting all cocky and everything. I'm like, okay, seems to know. And he cast his anchor, like a proper anchor, over the bow of the boat. Yeah. People jump off the back. We go swim around. Next thing you know, we come back. We don't recognize the air. We don't recognize land. What? And I come back and I think about it. I'm like trying to piece this together. How did we screw this up? Yeah. And so, because we were off the back of the boat, like on a tether, actually. So that's what uh, the one dude was holding that from the from the stern, and now we were just kind of hanging out. But we came back up, landed, it looked the same. And we're trying to figure this out, and I was like, hold on a minute. I jump back in the water, and I go back down the anchor line. All the things hanging like 20 feet from the bottom of the water. Oh. From the bottom of the water. So it's the anchor's just hanging there. Meanwhile, the boat's just floating in the water. Just. How did you even get back to the boat? Is the question. Well, because he had he had he was tethered. He like he had a lot. Thank God he was stuff. tethered. Now see that's smart though. I mean, it. Yeah, yeah I guess. Well, that, like, at least that part of it at least is smart. Everything else you just said not so smart. But the, true, true. <laughs> I was like, you never, like, where the hell are we? Oh, we were miles in that amount of time from where we started. I was like, jeez. I'm like, Don, you're an idiot. <laughs> I feel like dying with you today. <laughs> the bad part of this whole thing of those stories I shared with you is that I continued to go diving with one or both of those guys over and over again. <laughs> so how stupid am I? I? I guess kept doing it, you know. Um, you know, you said it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I've told my wife, I'm like, you need to get scuba certified and because this has been years ago. And she's like, um, she's like, well, I don't know why. I didn't think you liked diving. I go, no, I don't like diving with them. I'd rather yeah. dive and like... Honestly, I'd rather dive in about 35, 40 feet of water where you can still get a lot of light and a lot of visibility. That's it. You know, but how many guys, these guys get this testosterone going and they're like, no, 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 man, we got to do an 80 foot dive, you know? You know what? And that's, those are the guys where they either tell me that they're inexperienced or you're diving with ego. Yeah. no time for it. Well, and that's well, why I quit yeah, diving. I totally agree. You go to 65, 80 feet some places and... Unless you're in St. Thomas, St. Martin, the Caribbean, crystal clear water, you're looking at purples, blues, and greens. Right. Exactly. Just as you said, you go to 25, 35 feet, man, you got the whole Roy G. Biv spectrum hanging out. You got so much more wildlife because the sun penetrates. That's where the action is. Absolutely. I care less about um, who's got a bigger swing and going at 120 <laughs> feet for however many. What a piss off, dude. I, have at it. Well, I can't tell you that. And that's how many times I've tried to explain that same story. It's like, you know, they'll say, well, look at all these pictures and, you know, all these different things. I'm like, you don't understand. That's taken with an awesome light system that's bringing those colors out of that fish and that coral. Because I can assure you at 50, 60, 70 feet, you're losing a lot of those colors that are in there. And it's the reason why these guys that go out and get these different, you know, colored suits and the whole bit, they get down there and they're all gray. You know, yeah. black. Yeah. 
everything looks like a desert and, you know, really odd colored and the whole bit. And then you shine your flashlight over on a fish going by and you're like, holy cow, man, look at the greens and yellows. And Totally. I worked at a scuba store when I was in uh, high school and the first couple of years of college. And there was a dive watch company that came in and was trying to, you know, help promote our watch, help promote their watches. And they said, well, here, here's a couple watches for all of you so you can test them because you all know as much as I do, whatever the students see the instructors wear, they'll buy because it's got to be cool if the instructors are using it. Sure. And so we went out to the quarry to do some open water dive. We, we used them all week. We went out to the quarry for some open water dives and we wanted to have fun when we came back because they were, because the company was going to come back, download our dives, show us all the cool tricks and triggers and all that. And we're like, all right, great. So we were done with our dives, already maxed out on our bottom time, and we found some fishermen that were hanging out in one of the side of the quarries in Ohio. And it's like, hey, can we, uh, can we borrow your reels real quick? Well, we asked them, like, you know, how they bite? And they're like, uh, whatever. So it's like, we borrow your reels real quick. So we sat there. We, we waited up the, the fishing line, I mean, heavy, tied the watch to the bottom of it, cast the watch inside of the quarry, let it go all the way to the bottom, bring it back up, do it again. We probably do like three or four times. Cut to, we're all laughing to ourselves of what, what this is going to look like, dive gear. The watch company representative comes back in, goes to show us all this cool stuff, and just, oh, now you see here on your first dive, this, and then you look at your third, and, hey, what's... <laughs> And we're sitting there like, yeah, you know, I feel like it was her true dive profile. This dude was just, how are you not in a hyperbaric pressure chamber yeah. right now? Oh my God. <laughs> so with your father being Navy and then you join an army, how'd that go over? Uh, you know, the good news is my dad said, as long as I didn't join the Marine Corps, everything would be fine. So that was the first branch I actually went to, to, to look at because I thought, you know. The Marine Corps? Yeah. <laughs> I was being a little bit rebellious and at the same token, I thought they looked pretty badass, you know, so I thought, well, let me go check it out. And so I had all these pamphlets for the uh, for the Marine Corps when I walked in the Army recruiting station. And of course, that just lit them up. You know, I was actually going to go do something like aviation electronics over in the Marine Corps. At least that's what I thought. By the time I came out of the Army, they're talking to me about combat arms. And, no, you don't want to do that, man. We can give you a combat. If you want to go in the Marine Corps, then let's put you in the combat arms. You can get a bonus right now. And so they threw the whole info about bonus and I could pay off my car and the whole bit. And I was like, yeah, where do you sign me up? So I decided to go army at that point. I don't know. I never remember how my dad reacted, but I think as long, he was one of these guys, as long as I wasn't going to the Marine Corps, he was, he was fine with it. My mother wanted me to go to the Air Force because she had seen the Air Force's, you know, housing, BXs and commissaries. And yeah, and said, son. You really want to go in the Air Force. It's the best way yeah. to go. You're talking quality. You're right. The, the Air Force, I mean, they have the best birthings, the best food, the best galley, and then all the best golf courses. And by the time it's all done and built, and they go, oh, wait, we need more money for planes. Yeah, I tell that story all the time. Or a runway. It's like, all right, well, let's build all the things that we need, and then we'll go back and say, hey, we need some additional money for the planes or runways. Yeah, it's absolutely. Just, that's the bad part about the Army and the Air Force is that it doesn't take much to build a base or put a runway anywhere in the United States. Awesome. At least in the Navy, you got to be by a body of water. So oh, that's true. That's true. And you got the best place like San Diego and Jacksonville, Hawaii, Florida, Hawaii. Florida. You can't see him sitting here right now, but... He's got his dog with him, and uh, we've been chatting about scuba diving. And then in the background of his room there, he could have shown you all the stuff that he showed me, which he's got all kinds of autograph stuff, as well as um, some pretty interesting costumes that he's been in through his time. 
So you missed all the good stuff, Kat. Costume? <laughs> you might want to elaborate on that one. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, uh, go ahead. You go know, ahead, so. Jeff. No, no, no. Go ahead. Explain this. Uh, you know, so when you're yeah, younger, please explain this. When you're younger and you appreciate the toys you grow up with, and you want to have them as real deal when you get older, so you got a full uh, full size Snake Eyes, Stormtrooper, and Batman in the house. Full size. Oh wow! They, and, he, and he wears them on Halloween, cat. Well, I, I, have, I was gonna say, are you into the Comic Con? No, I've never been. It's uh, they just kind of stay on the mannequins that they're on, and that's where they are. So when he panned the room, terrifying. It, when he panned the room, I mean, I was like, oh, wow, those are life size. He goes, yeah, they were actually made for me. I actually wear them. I'm like, oh, oh wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I have, I've actually, I've never worn the Stormtrooper outfit. And I've never worn the, ba- I've uh, never worn the Batman. The, the Snake Eyes one, I was, I put that on for Halloween and walked around Miami, Florida with it once. So you never worn the, why haven't you worn the other ones? Uh, they're just for show. It's, okay. Just you know, cool, cool factor. I think it's actually funny when I um, when I wore the snake eyes in Miami. And this is we're talking like five years ago. I actually liked the character himself. Didn't speak all night, so I walked around in that full suit of black and uh, just like stared at people. People were kind of like trying to figure out who I was. It's funny because. They didn't know if I was a uh, black person, if I was a white person. I even had people ask me when I was walking down the street. That's great. Like, this is pretty cool. You're totally anonymous right now. When I went up to the different bars, because we rolled around with a bunch of friends. When we rolled into different bars, I didn't say anything. I just wrote on a napkin what I wanted to drink and then took it through a straw kind of thing. But, um, yeah, it was pretty It was pretty fun. The, the, the two stories, one real quick, was I'm at, a, I'm at a, a, one of the bars we went to, and People were making comments, shouting all night, and I was like, "Ah, oh, it's kind of cool." And I just kind of ignored some of the other ones. And I'm sitting at the bar, and this guy taps me on the shoulder. I feel this tap on the shoulder, and I'm thinking to myself, "Oh man, like what drunk idiot is going to try to, you know, going to want to do something to me now?" And I turn around, and lo and behold, there was a an outstanding storm shadow guy, like. The um, Snake Eyes' brother in the, in the yeah. comic book, yeah. an outstanding character dressed as Storm Shadow. And as soon as people saw Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow standing next to each other, and it was a wonderful costume this guy had, all of a sudden, all the iPhones came out, all the pictures started happening. It was like a paparazzi photo shoot. I was going to say, was- you take that costume to Vegas, man, they'll start giving you money for uh, taking pictures. You know, that's, that's what those perfect. yeah, <laughs> that's what those people do. Then the other one was funny because uh, I'm walking across the street and I'm just minding my own business going – at this point, everybody else had retired and went to bed. But I thought this is kind of fun. Just walking around Miami, nobody knowing who I am. So I, I'm walking up and down. I think it was like Lincoln Avenue. And this one dude yells from across the way, hey, what are you supposed to be? A Navy SEAL? Oh. Tracks. And I look at this guy and I thought of all the people you could have yelled that to – I happen to be a Navy SEAL inside this outfit. I was like, what are the odds of that? So you didn't like uh, reach in your pocket and pull out your trident? Uh, no. <laughs> I thought you guys carried those things all the time. Not the real SEALs. Oh, okay, don't. all right. All right. <laughs> if, you, if you know somebody people. that does do that, please pass him. Pass me his name. I'll be sure to say hello. You know, I, you know what's interesting is I don't understand, and... If somebody listening to this could, could want to describe this to me, you're, it is they consider it freedom of speech 
to be able to put on whatever medals you want, even if you're in the military, put on whatever medals, declare that you're a war hero, Congressional Medal of Honor, Purple Heart, Silver Stars, whatever. And people in doing so try to get benefits from the VA, even though they've never served because they've, there's, been docu- there's been records of people faking DD-214s right. to go do that, to get discounts off of places of being held by you know stores or whatever else. It's okay because it's considered a freedom of speech for that. But then at the same time, you can't put on a cop uniform. Now, I do understand because that's considered illegal. I do understand the safety, public safety and all that. Right. However, if one is illegal – why shouldn't the other one be? Because it's taxpayers' money, it's, it's the military, it's a professional thing like that, which actually has influence, force. That's just interesting yeah. to me. No, I, I, I tend to agree with you, and I see all these stolen valor things. And there's been discussions on different podcasts that I listened to where they talked about stolen valor. And is it really that important for us to go after the individuals and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. I don't know. I mean, I I can see both sides of the the story. I just don't understand why somebody would want to do that. Why not just go ahead and put the uniform on and wear it as you're supposed to by signing the contract and going defending you know your country. Yeah, because it, people don't have that much integrity. Well, there you go. Well, they're, they're scared. I mean, I guess you, I guess you could say in one sense, okay, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, if a guy just wants to dress up, play around until he starts, or just to look like someone until he starts. Affecting others such as, I mean, you know, it's like going after military benefits or uh, when, it, when it comes to monetary, if he uses it to get a job yeah. he uses it on or discounts, okay, right. then that's far beyond just right. putting on a uniform. I agree. Well, and that's why I think the law says that if you start using it for benefits, some kind of benefit, that could even that's be. That's still a dollar law act. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You got to tell me a little bit more about Shadowworks because I started looking at it and. You know, one of the things I love about your tagline, live outside your comfort zone. Yeah, um, totally. So, I mean, that's something that you've always done. I, uh, for Shadowworks, I decided to put live outside your comfort zone because, yeah, I mean, Navy SEALs, uh, the, the the whole um, society, I don't say society, but the whole culture of what we have is to push ourselves beyond our limits. And um, in doing so, I think it's it's valuable because to really have someone to push themselves, achieve success – to go beyond what is what they think is humanly possible. That's what we do in the SEALs. The SEALs is all about finding new limitations because that's how we do what we can do. Uh, is to, to In order for us to do the types of missions in which we do, BUDS is all about taking the person and not breaking them down, not brainwashing them. It's stripping the individuality away from them, teaching them teamwork, right. communication, and effective leadership, and then infusing it into a pressure cooker where it forces you to be, the, be a better person, to find out really what your potential is. And those people that can do it succeed. Those people that can't ultimately leave. And I miss that. I think that is – and that is one thing that I generally wanted within the company because in action sports, action sports is, is – what you know that's what Shadowworks is, a patriotic action sports brand. We have a skydiving team in which we do crew canopy relative work. So we'll jump into stadiums all around the country docking parachutes together, making cool canopy formations, taking them down in front of an audience. Military uh, use? Absolutely not. Show use? Yes, that is definitely for show. Uh, you know, wingsuiting has been a big thing lately in, in action sports. We have a wingsuit uh, division within uh, Shadow Works because it's, it's all about the pushing boundaries type way that, uh, in that regard for the skydiving. Then with the race car team that we have, 
We have a GT4 homologated race car that um, is set up for the Pirelli World Challenge that races all around the country. Uh, it's a manufacturer-based series, but in racing as well, it's pushing the limits. It's, it's trying to control out of the line of out of control when you're fighting for the same real estate against cars that are doing 120, 140 miles an hour next to you and pushing yourself to get in a competitive nature to win. And that is all derived from what I cherished growing up, if you will. My grandma immigrated over, my grandparents immigrated from uh, England and from Sicily, amongst some other concoctions of the Europe. And I used to hear about the stories, and I didn't really understand it as a kid, it only is until later, that what they had to do when they immigrated over came through Ellis Island and to achieve a new life. And it was, you know, leave everything behind. We had to assimilate to the American culture and we had to find out who we were and establish ourselves, which then rolls right into, you know, the 50s and the 60s with the space race, pushing ourselves, saying we're going to put a man on the moon. And we didn't have all the computer technology we have now. We just had dials and knobs to turn and look what we did with that. And I missed that that uh, ideology. I miss the pushing ourselves as a nation to become a better, uh, better Americans to really achieve great things. And that's what I wanted to do through through Shadowworks is live outside your comfort zone, dare to push yourself smartly. Don't let your hair on fire and jump off a bridge and yell Yahoo, but actually take 30 <laughs> right. seconds. Look at the whole thing. So you know what? If we just do tweak this a little bit and we set up cameras and the, or whatever it is, this can be really effing awesome. Right. And and do it that way, and it's, I mean, the name Shadowworks comes from uh, a pushing of limits, if you will. I've always been fascinated with Skunk Works, the secret division of Lockheed Martin, who developed the U-2 plane, the stealth bomber, stealth fighter, SR-71, a myriad of technologies. And so the, the word shadow came from the, the teams, the Navy SEALs, we operate in the shadows, supposed to remain in the shadows, unlike a lot of people that you see today with books and everything else, or, or movies, video games. But then the works part came from Skunk Works because I thought it sounded awesome. You know, you're, it's always something in development. You're always continually trying to achieve something. And so that's where Shadow Works came around from. Why do you think a lot of people struggle with trying to get out of their comfort zone? I think we've become a complacent society. You, you tend to get into a routine and a lot of people are finding that today they get in such a routine that it becomes a rut. It becomes, you know, what drives them. Uh, as opposed to getting out of their comfort zone on occasion or trying something new or different, when you bring these people into shadow works and are these people already trained or is that part of the process is that you're taking them out of their comfort zone and having them go beyond what their typical day is today? Um, it depends. The guys that I have that jump into um, all the people that we have on our teams, if the race team or be it the skydiving team, are competent in such a fashion because it's not something you just – hey, we'll come teach you. You have to be, there's years of training that goes into jumping into stadiums. Say, for example, you jump into downtown San Diego. There's skyscrapers that, that um, align Petco Park. Right. That's, I mean, people are just afraid to skydive. Next thing you know, you're going to jump over a city and you better land on the football field because that's a safe place to land. Otherwise, you're in a, an, um, a downtown area. Uh, and, the, and obviously, the race team. I'm, you know, we use certified mechanics, the race prop mechanics that know what the heck they're doing. However, we do through, you know, we, we have a t-shirt line, et cetera, that we sell on our website, but it's the more the promotion, the ideology and through that. And yeah, when we go to these places, that's what we're about. When we talk to people, it's all about, um, the pushing ourselves and trying to achieve new, better. When we donate action sports packages to charity, be it tandem skydives or, uh, a day of the race car or something like that, how we tie that all in. It's, 
definitely come on out to check it out. You want to go push yourself, go for a skydive. Maybe you'll like it. Uh, if you've never been in a race car, well, uh, we work with a race uh, professional driving school that we can put you in a go-kart, put you in a real car, take you for hot lap, and have you understand and push yourselves through um, exciting action sports such as that. And then we'll put you in a proper race car and take you for hot laps around the track. So it is that to, to dare oneself. And it just doesn't have to be physical. It can also be mental. It can also be in, in that regard because not everybody's a physical person. But it's ultimately pushing yourself to become a better person, become a better leader, become a better American. I think there's definitely a process to it as well. I mean, you, you just can't all of a sudden jump. You know, not to use that because the shadow works and the fact that you, but I mean, you just can't jump in that on occasion too. I mean, like the training that you ended up going through, it taught you in the very beginning what it was like to go from where you thought your comfort zone was to getting out of that comfort zone. And I mean, that's a lot of the stuff that you learned within BUDS is to escape what you thought was your comfort level ceiling so that you create a new level. Absolutely. You know, the best way that I had it explained to me in Buds was everybody's seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the part where Indy is trying to make his way across the crevasse to the Knights of Templar, and there's this bridge that he can't see. And he just takes a leap of faith, basically, and he just steps out, and boom, the bridge appears. And that's kind of like the Buds instructor. You're afraid to go across it because you don't know, and the Buds instructor is there to not gently escort you. He just gives you a massive shove. And you take the step and you fall. Now you're six inches or a foot farther than where you thought you were. And you work yourself a little bit and you think, okay, I can't do it anymore. And then once again, your fellow instructor is there to kick you in the ass one more time. And you actually know you're two feet further than where you were. Right. And at some point, you just keep pushing that line further and further. I mean, it's, uh, I miss the days of, you know, you would hear, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, oh, the yesteryear was so much better. No, not at all. I mean, I love stuff that Elon Musk is doing. That's fantastic, finally. Like Felix Baumgartner jumping from the you know the Red Bull space jump, hell yeah! Well, he took what forty years and Kissinger jumped out of it. Like, right. let's keep going. I love how the CEO of Google just did it on his own and reported about it afterwards. Nobody knew about it when he jumped from space. I'm sure his board didn't want him to do it if they he would have asked. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you know, people ask me they're like, "Would you do that?" In a second, I would do that. If there's yeah. an opportunity to to break barriers and for achievement of science or or you know do something like that with the with the best at the helm guiding me, uh, yeah. So let's take Jeff all the way back to high school or whatever before you came into the uh, the Navy. What, right. what was it? I mean, you didn't have those same comfort zone levels. So what was it that drove you to go that direction? And then, of course, the SEALs. And how much of a change did you see within yourself between the pre and post? Oh, man. Um, so I don't think I knew the whole like pushing comfort zone thing until I got to SEALs. Um, and that all started – I mean, I wasn't the the smartest or the, the most popular kid in school either. I mean, I definitely had my share of getting made fun of. I uh, didn't want to go back to school. My mom remembers me, you know, arguing with her about wanting to go back because I was just getting tired of. I mean, I my nickname was Tank. I was chubby and I had big feet. So when your age <laughs> is the same as your shoe size, it doesn't look good. You look like I look like a clown. So um, it just took me a while for me to grow into it. But it, uh, I remember my my dad and my brother they built model airplanes growing up, and that's where I really 
kind of got introduced to military, if you will, through right. model airplanes. We used to go to the Cleveland Air Show every single year, uh, saw the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds, and it got to the point where my brother read all kinds of books. So he would actually go up to the pilots and tell them about their planes. And the pilots would be like, yeah, that's great, kid. Move on. <laughs> you know, years it was uh, brought into the service, the weapon payloads, all this other stuff. What colors would be inside of a C-130, random stuff. And I remember we walked in, one year we walked into one of those big carnival tents that has any and everything you can fill your house up with junk that they sell, you know, die cast, whatever, T-shirt, flags, everything. I remember looking at a, at a flag that was hanging from the rafters. And there was Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Marine Recon, Rangers, U.S. Navy, SEALs. And I looked at that and I thought, that sounds pretty awesome, U.S. Navy, SEALs. And I told my brother, I said, I'll be back. Went over, threw down 10 bucks, grabbed a, or however much it was, grabbed a U.S. Navy, SEAL flag, came back with my dad, back with him and said, you know, hey, dad, look what I got. He goes, what is it? I, said, I don't know. He said, well, then you better find out. So then I went and... Uh, got a book from Walden's books and I still have it. It's called Seals at War. And I did not like reading in school. I hate, I hated reading. If there's cliff notes or a movie. I'd much rather do that. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, I went to the bookstore, got this book and I read that book in two days and I loved it. It was the men, they were known as men with green faces. If you're going to be taken by them, you're never going to be seen again. They were the baddest of the bad. They had the toughest training in the world. In the beginning of the Vietnam War, the VC actually tried to uh, join the, uh, units that would go against them. By the end of the Vietnam War, they were trying to get out of those units because they didn't want to uh, go against them. And I remember seeing a picture of all these, uh, about eight SEALs on a beach in Vietnam. And every single one of them had a different uniform. They looked like the bounty hunters from Empire Strikes Back. Right. And I just thought that was so freaking cool that they were just, it was unconformed to the general military and they were badass dudes. And ever since then, I was like, I want to be a Navy SEAL. So everything I did just was ultimately transitioned over. Instead of running our sprint track, I went to distance track. Instead of playing basketball, I joined the swim team. Birthday list and Christmas list became gear lists. And I read every single book I could possibly get. And that's what made me want to, I just focused everything to being a SEAL. Tried to go into the SEALs. I tried to convince my parents to go into the SEALs after high school. And uh, made, a, made a deal with them that I would go, that just let me go to college first. And afterwards, I could do whatever I wanted. Well, after college, I joined OCS and then ended up going to, uh, going to BUDS. Did, so, so you went straight to BUDS out of OCS? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So the is that the, unusual? No, not for officers. Okay. Uh, so when you join as an officer, you there's a designation in which you can you choose, and it was a very tight process. There was only 18 openings for 250 applicants the year that I was selected. I don't know how I got selected out of that because I was going up against every other kid in the country and also enlisted SEALs who wanted to become Navy SEALs themselves, tr go over to the dark side and become an officer. And so there's it was a there's a huge pool, uh, a big pool of people to uh, qual a very qualified pool of people to pull from, and I was one of 18 people. And funny to say, the class behind me, Michael Murphy, rolled through OCS right behind me from Lone Survivor. Oh wow! So he, I knew him through OCS, and then we went through buzz uh, a bit of buds together. And David you treated differently being an officer at OCS. In OCS, everybody's the same. When you get well, to bugs, they just call you sir. <laughs> they make yeah. you do anything else. Yeah, man. Well, I mean, so they they call you sir. They expect more out of you. Um, they'll get in your face more to to lead the men because the instructors that are putting you through training, 
could absolutely wind up being in a platoon with you when, when, you're, when you're done. So they want to make sure that you're an actual officer that they would want to operate under. Um, our test scores, are, our minimum test scores to, to achieve are higher than the enlisted. And rightfully so. It should be. It's uh, the pressure. You're leading them. Exactly. The pressure cooker is a, a little bit harder for, uh, for us. But uh, at the same time, it isn't the same thing against the enlisted guys, man. They, they're the backbone of the teams, and they make it happen. We're just there to guide, lead, and they execute. So David Rutherford was one of your buds instructors. Great dude. Great dude. And we had him on a few weeks back. Very um, highly motivated individual. Um, he is. <laughs> he put us, in, and we were in training, he put us, uh, as you said, he was one of our instructors, he put us through one of the best medical down man scenarios that I ever had. I still remember it to this day. It was so impactful. It was awesome. It was, we, um, we were at Nyland, and, which is a remote location in the desert when we were going through training. And I think it's, I don't remember if it was in BUDS or if it was in SQT, uh, the advanced aspect of the SEAL training. But we were doing IADs, took contact, broke fire, and it was at night. Or it ended up uh, coming right at dusk because it went from daytime to nighttime. And I happened to be one of the guys that was next to the down man when he got you know, notionally shot. And, of course, it was a 60-gunner, so we had a 25-pound gun with all the weapons that he had. And he was no small dude to begin with. He probably weighed 230 without any gear on. And... It was, you know, the, the, the training took over and it was, it was fun to be quite honest, just because he went down, we laid down suppressive fire. So machine guns just rocked uh, to put down a base of fire. Two dudes grabbed them. We ended up rolling out the corpsman, the, one of the uh, nearby corpsmen jumped on them and there was, so two dudes were carrying, the corpsman was there. I was helping, um, with logistics and all that, and we just kept bounding back as the rest of the element kept uh, bounding back with us. And it was my job to keep the corpsman informed of where we were in the movement as everybody was shooting and moving coming back. And uh, it's funny, uh, Instructor Rutherford, or Dave Rutherford, <laughs> was there and um, just yelling at us the whole time, throwing out uh, grenade simulations around us for the explosion to go off, telling us all the different like, symptoms he was achieving, um, all that the, the down man was feeling, uh, just throwing scenarios at the corpsman so he could fight through it and think about what was going on in the notional down person's body. Ended up getting back, and, and all Rutherford kept saying was, keep going, keep going, we're not done, keep going. Well, at one point, we got to an end, it's like, all right, I jumped on the radio and called in helo support. Next thing you know, two helicopters come flying in, the guys that had dropped us off, and I had to set it up where... We, we had to get on one. Everybody else had to get on the other. We jumped in the helicopter. I mean, they had laid landed. Rutherford got on with us. We took back off. It started getting nighttime. He kept yelling at the corpsman uh, to keep going, keep going, give him symptoms. Had to give the guy an IV in a moving at a flying helicopter at night with a red lens flashlight. And that was funny just because you see the, the guy going, you're going to do what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that uh, the pilot was looking back uh, at the what was going on because every time the needle got close, he banked the helicopter. Oh, no, he didn't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and we went all the way back to base, and he, Rutherford kept saying, keep going, we're not done yet, keep going. I'm thinking, oh, well, what's next? You know, get him inside. So as soon as we landed, the door opened, we jumped up, we ran inside, and SEAL Team 3 was actually in the compound as well. We kicked in the doors, went running down the doors to the uh, medical room, 
and to the emergency room. And they, the, the guys at SEAL Team 3 actually thought a dude was shot because we came in so hot and heavy. We're blowing through. We threw him down on the gurney. They cut off his, his BDUs. And it was the most realistic scenario without getting shot I think we've ever been through. And as soon as we put him on the gurney and Instructor Rutherford was in the corner and started going through all of a sudden the, the holy shit medical terminology start coming out me and my other buddy looked at each other and we just kind of backed off at that point <laughs> but meanwhile the other guys in my team had turned around they were actually like looking at the door to see how far we were going to take it and what was going on and it was just that was awesome that was probably the most realistic down man scenario i've ever had and i'll never forget it so did he ever <laughs> like stop it and say okay this that's it good job that's you know. yeah as, as soon as he uh, we had the iv going in and we cut off his clothes and then at one point it became a scenario of okay if this then that okay, okay. if this then that and th- it eventually stopped and th- there's my buddy sitting his you know i was gonna say <laughs> by the time he cut all of his clothes off so team three guys that thought he was shot probably looking and going what the i mean this guy yeah. doesn't have a scratch on him except for no an blood, uh, no nothing. yeah except for an iv that's probably got seven holes in his arm from yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> Poor, uh, well, that was, I mean, you know, in order to give a, a nasal or oral effingeal, which is you shove a tube up a guy's nose or put a tube down his throat, we actually did it. So they asked for volunteers, and one of the guys was voluntold. <laughs> Come yeah. here. So it's, yeah, it's, I've it's, done that. It's terrible. Yeah. You feel like you're drowning. <laughs> like, yeah. it's absolutely terrible. That's why you guys are so awesome. And, like, you, I mean, I think that the fact that you can go from a all the way to like in the medical room through just training, you know what I mean? is so beneficial instead of like, well, let's just say this happens. I mean, it's hard to compartmentalize that. You know what I mean? See, and I'm sure like once you're out on the, like in the field, in the sh- then yeah. it's like, Oh yeah, it's, this is, this is pennies to that. So you know, something as simple cool. as, okay, well, of course I call helos in right now, but then the actual, okay, you said you call in helos. You got to make sure that, the down man element is on one helo, separated from the other helo, so you're not sitting there trying to un yourselves, getting in the helicopter, separating your team up to lift. And something as simple as that is is time, and time is you know blood, and blood is life. So I mean, just setting up an HLZ and pulling security and all that, like having the actual helicopters come in is just, I mean, that's that's insane. Yeah. Like. You got the IV, the helicopters come in, the real live sand that gets blown up. You got to hunker yeah. them, cover it up, it's a little stuff like that, so it doesn't get infected, or or make your matter worse, or clog the whole uh, injections or the insert spot with contamination. Yeah, it's interesting, but yeah, I just love that. but that's cool. That's really cool to hear that they do that with you guys, like all the way to the end. And that's that's in training. I mean, not yeah. advanced training. Well, actually, not like once you're in the platoon, you're gone. That was again. That was in the first year of being in the SEAL program, still student level, and they're like, let's go, let's go, keep going, move it, you know, and that's one thing I love, is I didn't realize until actually I got out, and I've talked to other people who, 20, anywhere between 23 and 30 years old, and I find out the level of responsibilities they have, or what they're capable of doing, and I think, at 24, I was overseas helping a foreign country earn requirements to join the European Union and NATO, like I was literally running their Navy, their, their top admiral looked at me and said, okay, now what do we do? Wow. So I was playing real life battleship right. with a foreign country's assets. I thought, holy cow. And then this per, you know, um, somebody, and that's not to say everybody in society, but then the majority, I think, of people in America, kids in America these days at 24, 25, they're worried about going out. They're moving and, back home. <laughs> they're moving back home with mom and dad. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> so where, where I, I mean, do you think it, it? When do you think it was within the training that you started realizing that 
you're kind of exceeding every comfort zone that you ever had. I mean, day one. Day one. Okay. Day one. I remember actually before day one, we were in, in dock. Um, so, so when I arrived, there was about a week prior to we actually did fourth phase, indoctrination phase, and then hit the ground running. And that's when El Nino came through. And I remember there were two, two guys in my class, an officer and a listed dude, were massive surfers. So they grabbed their surfboards and they went out and they tried to, they couldn't even, the waves are so big, they couldn't even paddle out past the first wave. They kept getting kicked back. And they, they went out there for about 45 minutes to an hour, trying to just paddling. And uh, I remember I was standing up on the outside stairs with about five other dudes. And it was pouring down rain. And I'm thinking, this is stupid. We have Gore-Tex jackets. Why aren't we putting them on just to stand here? We're in our, we're in our camis. I made the stupid mistake of saying, why don't we go get raincoats? Oh. And, and this one dude just turns around and looks at me and says, welcome to Buds. And that was it. And I thought, okay, check, got it. Understood. Keep mouth shut from now on. You know, and a lot of people just don't get forced in that type of thing. I mean, they don't, they don't, they don't get put in those situations like what we just talked about, where you can actually find out what you thought was your comfort zone and that you're going to start exceeding that. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because people say, oh, you know, I can do that. As they're sitting on the couch or that, I can do that. I can, you know, it doesn't seem that tough when you're cold, like, like physically shaking cold and you're wet and you're tired and now you're hungry. Those four things just compound on each other and all bets are off. But I think sometimes people don't get engaged to those types of things to find out truly what their, you know, what their max limit is, what their capacity is. And they think that this is all I can be and all I'm capable of. And until you get put in those type of situations, you're going to think this is my ceiling. I think mentally is what right. way more than any sort of strength that you can have. And they think they know their limits, but then showing them a possible limit that they've never encountered, it completely changes a person. And I, like you said, like creating, making society better just by those experiences, like what you're doing is just, I mean, it shows the realism of, of fear and, uh, you know, doubting yourself and then being like, well, like, holy cow, like I can, I can achieve that and I can push my limits and I've never pushed my limits before like that. And I mean, we've all been in experiences where it's like, like you said, you're wet, cold, tired, hungry, you know, out in the middle of anything. And, you sometimes think like, I don't know, you know, if I can actually keep going with this, but then you just have to, you're in a position where you have to. And I think that's why you're in an entitled, you know, society nowadays, we're so entitled and we feel like we, everyone deserves something and we all have to share and all that. And I mean, until you like what you guys are doing, pushing these people to that limit or like what uh, Colin's doing, I mean, you'll never know. So I, I think like, especially what you're doing, you are contributing to society in such a huge way by saying like, go out there and get what you want and feel like, feel the empowerment of what you can yeah. bring to yourself. So totally. that's cool. So awesome. And that's why I have, I have major reservations with them. You know, the, a bunch of people in Congress want to come out and they want to change the rules of buds. They constantly say, why do you do it like this? Do you need to do that? Yes. You, everything we do at buds is because we've learned something in history and it's been paid the price of blood. Well, well look at you guys as individuals. I mean, look at, I mean, even the conventional side, like you ask these people, like, 
about seals or rangers delta force all these guys it's like we don't we don't talk about them you know what i mean it's like because these guys are like they don't just talk like they have to go out there and do this i mean if you start changing stuff then you're not going to get the capable men the that you have right now that have been winning the war for the last 10 years that nobody knows about. You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing is like people want to know what they know and then they shrink their brains down to be like, well, we can, we can make it a little bit smaller or not that hard because this is just what society wants. The military uh, yeah. is a social experiment. It's a defense. No, tool. exactly. That's exactly what I, especially with the whole implementing women, I don't want to go into that, but that's like, we are at a time of war right now. And it isn't time to be playing chess in the military. Right yeah. right now, I just think it's terrible that we're screwing with it, especially since ISIS is right on our back. No, I agree completely. Like, don't change things because we have the best war fighters in the world. And we do. We're the best technology, the best war fighters. And why are you trying to, you're trying to fix something that isn't broken? Yeah. Well, one, because they haven't seen their brother or sister in arms die. And True. they don't know the impact of that. And well, we do. Yep. You're absolutely right. And it's, it's, it's like, why do you make it softer? You're going to get more of us killed. So. You know, it's funny. I, um, I had the pleasure, and I say the word pleasure, of talking to President Bush in the Oval Office. Me and my team had met him. And hearing his ideology of how he viewed the office, hearing about his perception of, you know, I'm not here to make decisions to, be, to, to get popularity vote. I'm trying to figure out how to make the country a better place 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Man, it was awesome hearing him speak. It was fantastic talking to him, shaking his hand, and listening to him. And it really leaving there was more disenfranchised than I already was with the media. And I wish more people saw that side of him or had the ability to talk to him. But it's uh, like as a real person, you know, you got to sit down with him and not let him like like he got it. he understood what was yeah. going on in the world. It wasn't this this facade or this facade of. Well, what we think, you know, it's like, no, this is what we're dealing with right now. And it's, it was really a, man, he was, he was a fantastic, we're leaving him. I was like, thank God you're my boss. Yeah. Loved it. So. And that's the thing. It's like we, the military itself, 3% of the population. So we're here trying to convince 90 something, 97, I don't want to say 97, but high number of people, individuals to think how we think with the common sense that, and it's hard. Yeah, yep. You know, it's, yeah, it's it's funny. I don't go to other people's jobs and tell them what they should or should not be doing. So I don't know why they're coming into mine and telling me how we should be doing ours. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Are some of the people that you're taking that you're doing some of the jumps are? Did you say that they're civilians and they've not had yep. much of experience or? Yeah. So what? So when we do the skydives, basically what we do is like for example, uh, Naval Special Warfare Family Foundation, um, Seal Legacy Foundation, or a couple of the charities we've supported in the past, and. Um, Specifically, those just because it's from the Brotherhood, they they support the Brotherhood that I'm from. Is that your chopper uh, coming in, or yeah, okay. I like the heat running over. <laughs> the hot time in the old town tonight, I guess. <laughs> um, so yes, yeah, so we we support. I mean, in the past, we've supported the Naval Special Warfare Family Foundation, the Sea Legacy Foundation, and uh, some things that we'll do is like we'll donate um, tandem packages to them. So, say for example, we'll donate ten tandem skydives to you. They can sell them for how much? That's great. Uh, like 1500 bucks. Let's, you know, let's put these things out to keep all the money and we'll go out and uh, take people for a tandem skydive. People that have never been, but we'll throw the money at it to help the foundation and push themselves a little bit of jumping out of a plane. So have you had like some pretty cool success stories with people thinking, having bigger heads or even being, they self-doubt going thought, and doing I this? Thought, and... well, skydiving can be a bit humbling. <laughs> 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 
Jumping uh, out of a perfectly good airplane. Well, first of all, show me a perfectly good airplane. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. This we recently took a female who was actually former uh, former marine and all excited, robust. And let's go do this. Can't wait. It's going to be simple. Let me tell you. She hit when we landed. She unclipped and she's like, "Oh hell no! I don't know how the hell you do that." Oh no. <laughs> really? And the. Uh, the initial shock, I think after, like, it took about two days to kind of take it all in of what just happened. I made a video, cut it for her, sent it off to her. And I think after about two days, it was, oh, my God, that was freaking amazing. Like, you're not going to believe this. It was so cool. But, man, when they when when the tandem master and when we left the aircraft, she was locked in, focusing on the ground, didn't look up, had trouble breathing. <laughs> oh, my God. What's the height that you guys are jumping at? Thir 13. Oh, oh 13. Two and a half miles up. Yeah. You were talking about the suits and everything. Yeah, the military considers anything over 10,000 feet to, to, be, uh, to be considered high altitude. Right, okay. So if you're at 10,001 feet, it's considered high altitude. But wingsuits, they need air to be effective because the suit actually inflates. So you can take it up as high as you wanted to go. I think of brother uh, Andy Stumpf just jumped from 35,000 feet with a wingsuit and wow. broke uh, the, the record for longest flight with a wingsuit recently. So yeah, as long as you got air, you can jump with it. For, for Felix Baumgartner, where he did, that's not, I don't think it's gonna work out that well from, from that height, but. Yeah, yeah. You guys take them up and use those suits and still jump out at 13 or do you go yeah, higher? Yeah, so, so it's, we'll use the canopy relative work, the, the normal parachutes demonstration for enclosed areas such as stadiums, Baseball stadiums, football stadiums, etc. We can use the wingsuits for demonstration purposes if we go to, if we jump into, say, a golf course, a racetrack, anything that's got broad open sights to the left and to the right, because we would jump out and then with smoke on our feet, you could actually see the path of travel in which we take and come around and then land in front of you. It wouldn't work for a stadium because it would literally be a flyby. Right. <laughs> I can imagine. Of course, that might be pretty cool. Get about three guys, you know, doing a flyby like the aircraft does, you know. Yeah, but then again, where are you going to land at downtown? I was going to say, in the parking lot. <laughs> yeah. Trying to dodge a car. Try that in San Francisco. I think you're going to run out of room real quick. <laughs> so how did you end up in L.A.? Uh, so I was in the military and... Um, Moved from, I was originally stationed, you know, going through training in San Diego, went out to Virginia Beach for when I was with SEAL Team 10, came back to the West Coast because was then put in charge of the Navy Parachute Demonstration Team, which is where I learned all my skill sets for jumping out of planes. And from there, I ended up uh, getting injured when I was on the team, ultimately ended up uh, me getting out. And I thought, well, what's another job that I want to do that doesn't require a cubicle, then yet is different every single day. And I thought... I've always liked movies and TV and watched the DVDs and how did they do that uh, in movies. And so decided to throw my hat into the Hollywood arena. So I moved up to L.A., found an agent, and then uh, for the past several years, I've worked in the TV and film industry. All right. So what more, are some... the, more in front of the camera and slowly is progressing to behind the camera. Oh, awesome. So what are some of the movies that we could see you in? Well, the first movie I ever did was Transformers, then uh, came back in Transformers 2, did some reshoots for the movie Kingdom, worked a little bit on the movie Iron Man, uh, been in three different soap operas, worked on Criminal Minds several years, uh, uh, worked on Criminal Minds over the several years, I've done Love That Girl, and just a couple other things, some commercials I, and whatnot. Okay, you lost me when you said soap opera. See, I was all yeah, with you, you there. You, you had the super, yeah, or... you had superhuman yeah. stuff going <laughs> off, and all of a sudden you... <laughs> You went down to, you know, 
soap opera. You know, I would, uh, so here's my argument against that. And it's so funny you said that because when I got out of the military and came over, you're absolutely right. I remember I talked to my buddy and he looks and goes, what if you do? Don't do soap operas. And I was like, no kidding, right? Cool. And the first job I ever did was on, was on Days of Our Lives. Yeah, that's <laughs> hilarious. So, like, you're like every grandma's like fantasy now. <laughs> <laughs> so let me I know look. my mom's in there just staring at you. <laughs> let me pitch it to you this way. When, and when you think about that, one, it, it's probably the best on the job training I've ever had for acting because you have got to memorize a ton of uh, script, you've got to deliver it. And you don't have a ton of takes in which you have to deliver it. So you better get it in the first two takes. Otherwise, if you hit take four, it's now the scene from hell. Because right. they've, got, they've got to move on. They've got to shoot an ep- at least one episode every single – more than one episode every single day so they can have breaks during the holidays for when they, for they go visit their families. So as far as on-the-job training, it's great. Now let's look at the monetary aspect of it. Average, I'm going to say, and don't quote me on this, but Susan Lucci, who I've worked with on Young and the Restless, fantastic woman, she was one of the one of the highest being paid. And I'm, I'm not going to speculate what she was paid, but let's say on the average, for sake, you're making two grand an episode, which is possible in in the uh, days of our life in, in the soap arena. So say you're making two grand now. There's a show on every single day. I was going to say, yeah. That's... So, but you take away the weekend. So there's let's on an average a 30 day month. Eight days are gone, 22 days, and let's say that you're an average character on there, so 10 days. So 10 days work at $2,000 a day, you're making 20 grand a month. That doesn't sound too bad now, does it? Not bad at all. Where do I sign up? Wow. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Come on, let's talk about soap I'm not quite as debonair as you are, though. I'm sure you cleaned up nicely and looked all good. They probably even had you in your SEAL uniform uh, once they found out you were a SEAL, and yeah. <laughs> oh, so that's a funny story about that. But so to finish up with the the soaps, though, so you're making twenty grand a month, and that's just on your your pay. Now you do have to pay managers, agents, and all taxes on it. But right. you're still grossing 20, 20 grand a month. Never mind the fact that you're also getting residuals. And as my friend was on a very prominent soap, yeah, and it is is and it is the favorite soap in Italy, and they're seven years behind. I was going to say, so the syndication aspect of it as well? Oh, very nice. So he's getting paychecks long after he's left that TV show. So once again, what do you want, you want to say something about that? <laughs> can you cry on command? No, I can't. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I want to see that. Go for it. I, the SEALs have taught me well. When I get injured, I start laughing. Come on, yeah. Jeff. Get out of your comfort zone. We want to yes, see you we're cry. We're going to zoom in on your face. <laughs> yeah, right. Give me, give me a visine eye droplets or something like that. Oh, that's so hilarious. it was funny. You mentioned I actually went in for an audition as uh, for another project as the role of a, of a Navy SEAL. I'm like, perfect. Yeah. Finally, I wore the same exact gear that I would wear when, that I wore when I was overseas. Matter of fact, I downloaded bullets out of magazines that I still had in my gear because I didn't want to freak anybody out in, in right. L.A. Right. And so I walk in, and it was. Very minimal dialogue. It was more the action, how to clear a room. I taught other countries how to do this. Brilliant. I grabbed the Nerf gun that they had. Full gear. Matter of fact, I'm sitting outside the door, and this one girl walks by, and she says, either you do a lot of military roles or that stuff's real. And I was like, yeah, it's been around the world a little bit. So <laughs> I go into the room, talk to the casting director, and find out what to do. I take, the, I take their Nerf gun, kick in the door, go down, I do the proper clearing, clear left, clear right, all clear. And the guy sits there, looks at me and goes, wow, that was, that was really good. And I'm, of course I'm thinking, well, no shit. 
<laughs> uh, so I sit there and I just kind of smile at him. He goes, yeah, but, um, you know, we're just looking for someone who looks more like a Navy SEAL. Oh. <laughs> and my face goes deadpan. I mean, you have a resume you give to them for a purpose. They're on the back right. of the resume is all the stuff that you do with like special, special interests or stuff like that. And I look at them and I say, hmm, that's interesting. I came here looking for someone who looked more like a casting director, but I got you. Oh. And you know, it has hurt feelings. <laughs> you're not getting any residual off that show any longer, right? You're not getting any residual off that show anymore, I dig it. Admittedly, it was one of those weeks that, you know, it was up and down in the Hollywood arena and I was just so tired of having Hollywood trying to tell me who I am. Yeah. I absolutely know who I am. I mean, I've literally been told I'm too tall, I'm too I'm too short, too skinny, I'm too fat, I'm too good looking, which I laugh at every single time. Or I'm not good looking enough. Literally the gamut. And so when this guy said this to me, I just had enough. I said, you know, I'm looking for a casting director, but I got you. And he looks at me and he's like, what did you just say? I said, why don't you, if you would please, sir, to take my resume and flip it over and read the last paragraph. At the bottom, it says, Navy SEAL veteran. He goes, oh, were you really a Navy SEAL? Yeah. <laughs> nice to meet you. I would have not wasted my time anymore. I mean, what were they were looking for, this guy, like six foot three, two, you know, 250... But look at how media perceives, yeah. you know, portrays um, just special forces, rangers, Navy Absolutely. SEALs. I mean, yep. it's not real. It's not realistic. So. so, so hence, that started my racing career. <laughs> <laughs> oh, See, someone got their feelings. We go, we go all the way back to the very beginning of our conversation, Jeff. Yep. You, I asked you. Do you carry around your little trident? See, you probably should be carrying that thing around just so you can lay it on the table and go, there you go. I would never. They wouldn't even know what it is. (laughs) They wouldn't have a clue. You're supposed to be the silent professional. I try to do that. Yeah. Oh, man, it's been great talking to you. What what can, I mean, if somebody's wanting to reach out to Shadowworks, where where can they find more information? I know you've got a lot of apparel line, and, of course, you've got the opportunity if people want to get out of their comfort zone and Sure. So uh, we can always be reached through our website at shadowworksgroup.com. There's also, uh, you can email us at customerservice at shadowworksgroup.com. Uh, we're on all the social media platforms, Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook. They're, they're short. That's S-H-D-W Works on Instagram, on Twitter, Facebook, Shadowworks Group on Facebook. But by all means, absolutely reach out. Uh, even to the young kids that aspire to be Navy SEALs, I'm in the process of mentoring uh, several right now. There's some programs in and around the LA area, or and also there's programs around the con- other programs on the country for kids that want to do this. So I'll be more than happy to put you uh, in touch with it. Yeah. Uh, let us know about some of the charities you guys support as well. Because you sure. mentioned. Uh, Naval Special Warfare Family Foundation is a great one. They take care of the survivors of uh, SEALs, of the surviving families of fallen SEALs, or if there's a SEAL that's been more, uh, injured significantly. SEAL Legacy Foundation does the same thing. And then also Carry the Load is another great one about helping not only SEALs, but also first responders. Where can we find you on the racing circuit? Uh, right now we're going after sponsorship, but the Pirelli World Challenge Series is up for, I think their next move is to mid-Ohio right now. And for, uh, the Shadowworks Scott Air Assault team, the Scottiving Elements, there's a couple requests that we are, have gotten to jump into some football games this fall. So 
Uh, cool. I always check the website to find out where we're going to be heading to and what we're up to next. You know, last year we jumped into Oklahoma Sooners uh, Military Appreciation Day game. It was fantastic. It was a night jump. 85,500 people were there. The de- I was told the dean of the school hadn't seen a halftime show in about 20 years. And when he saw, he actually saw us land during the halftime show, he was blown away. Awesome. Uh, it, just, it, it was awesome for us. We're talk of the town. We went out to dinner afterwards. We, people, people walked up to us to get our pictures. It was fantastic. I can't imagine was, what the feeling would have been like 85,000 people roaring at you anyway. We could hear them. Oh, oh I bet yeah. you could. As soon as we entered it above the stadium and people finally saw us because we just kind of came out of the night sky. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. It just erupted. <laughs> it just erupted. You can see the video um, on our YouTube channel. As so, well, Shadowworks group. So did you have it all produced and everything, Jeff, with the music blaring as well, really loud, and you know the crescendo coming about the time your feet hit well, on the, the field? The marching and... band was on the field. They had America all spelled oh, out. Oh, okay, so even better. Used the, uh, the music the, uh, that they had <laughs> playing, the very patriotic music. But yeah, it's, it was great. It was, was your, awesome. It was that, a lot of fun. You had your directing credits, uh, credits and stuff listed? Uh... Editing. Yeah, editing. editing. Okay, got gotcha, you. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> Where can we find you next, man? Now, what kind of movie or uh, show are you going to be on? In, in discussions with, uh, there's a, I'm actually attached to three different movies that we're just waiting for the produ- the funding to get their act together and the uh, investors to come out. But hopefully by the end of the year, we'll have two movies in the can that uh, we'll be seeing. They're pretty fun. They're action-oriented, shoot-em-up type movies, good weapons training. Yet again, check the website to find out what's going on. But It'll be great. Cool. Well, we're going to have to have you back on again so you can tell us all about it, you know. Yeah. Oh, I, I thank you very much for having me on. You guys are great. Please be sure to follow us at iTunes, leave a rating, and your comments. And if you don't have an Apple product, no worries. You can follow us at SoundCloud, download the app. And if you're on Twitter, be sure to follow us there at Mentors, the number four, M-I-L.